Thanks for listening and sharing Our Body Politic. As you know, we're only a few months into this show and we're shaping it with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. On this week's show, I go over the latest about the legal system for juveniles and talk with data scientists about their unique survey of young people of color. First, my next guest is leading the congressional response to anti-Asian hate crimes. Senator Maisie Hirono serves the state of Hawaii. Her family immigrated to the Aloha State from Japan when she was a little girl. She talks about it in her new memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. In a rare bipartisan vote, her bill to address hate crimes against Asian American Pacific Islanders recently passed in the Senate. Welcome, Senator Hirono. It's good to be with you, Farai. Let's start with your origin story. Like any superhero, you have one. And <laughs> and it's a tough one, you know. Um, tell us about your, your early childhood and also what your mother was going through at the time. I was uh, born in a prefecture in Japan. And at the age of three, I went to live with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, because I uh, had an injury and my mother wanted me to get the care necessary. And that would be uh, through where my grandparents lived, not where my own mother lived. So I lived with my grandparents from age three until just before we came to this country. In the meantime, my mother uh, endured uh, an abusive marriage to um, my father, who I did not know, get to know really, and uh, his family who treated her like a slave. So that family and and a lot of Japanese families, so the, the bride becomes part of the, the husband's family, and, and they really did not treat her well. So at one point, she finally decided she had to get away, get far, far away. And she brought me and my older brother to Hawaii. We had very little. In fact, we had nothing. <laughs> one suitcase. Uh, and my mother started off with the two older kids, me and my brother, who could go to school. And uh, sadly, having to leave my younger brother in Japan in the care of my maternal grandparents, uh, but, uh, you know, he was three years old and too young to go to school and there'd be nobody in this country to take care of him while mom worked. So very, very humble beginnings. You are the only immigrant in the U.S. Senate. And in your book, you say, you write, it pains me that our nation's immigration policy still does not reflect an adequate understanding of this trauma and the importance of families remaining together. How do you draw the line between your own experience and the heightened sense of uh, migration, border, and family separation over the past few years? As I mentioned, my mother had to leave my younger brother behind. and That trauma of being separated from his mother uh, stayed with him for the rest of his life. Of course, we did not know that it would be uh, a, a trauma for him that would impact his learning, his socialization, all of that. We did not know. So, of course, when uh, the, the um, president, <laughs> the former guy, <laughs> uh, instituted his uh, 
separation policy and, and literally wrenching thousands and thousands of children from the arms of the mothers and fathers. Uh, it brought it home to me that the harm that was being caused by our, our nation's policy and that it would be devastating to these children for a long, long time. And so when you think about the Trump years, um, in in some ways, they seem to have empowered you or that they were a precursor to you stepping into your power. How do you process that? Well, for I've always been a very determined person. I do come from a culture, both in Hawaii as well as my own Japanese background, where being vocal, aggressive, confrontational are, are not traits that are um, rewarded. <laughs> And so although I was very determined, I just got things done in the political arena uh, using other strategies. And it was the the Trump presidency, though, and the big bully that he was, because I I have a thing about bullies. We must stand up to bullies. And here I was confronted with the biggest bully of them all. And I decided to become much more vocal. The more um, I spoke out in a a very plain way, uh, the more I realized that it was important for us to be speaking out against all of these harmful policies than the divisiveness, the divisiveness that he represented to our country. Yeah, and and I just want to do a sort of correction on myself. You weren't stepping into your power. You already had (laughs) plenty of power. Um, You were stepping into your voice. And and does that feel comfortable now that you've been doing it for a while? Uh Much more so. I express it as I am my more complete self now that I also use my vocal powers not just my heart and my brain. (laughs) I want to transition to some questions about Asian American Pacific Islanders and power and peril in this moment. There's, There's a lot of both. And our colleagues over at the 19th recently shared some survey data from the Pew Research Center finding out last month in, you know, in April that More than 80% of Asian Americans say violence against them is increasing half at some point that they have feared for their physical safety since the pandemic started. So what would you say to other Asian Americans right now who are facing the, the, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine who was like, yeah, you know, I'm vaccinated, but I don't really feel like leaving the house. I don't feel safe. We know that there's been a significant rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. These are totally unprovoked. I don't know of a single Asian person who feels like that we can just walk around uh, as though nothing might happen. I certainly don't walk around with my earbuds on listening to audio tapes. I have to be aware of my surroundings. We've all seen the horrific videos. And and so uh, you know, we, we need to, one, condemn this kind of discriminatory actions against our community. And it's sadly not new to our community, just as there is systemic racism against our Black community and systemic racism against minorities of uh, all stripes in, in our country. And the more we face up to that fact, the more we can uh, address it, deal with it, prevent it. And tell us about the bill that you have been working on with Representative Grace Meng? We introduced the COVID-19 hate crimes bill, she in the House, me in the Senate. The way I look at this bill is that there are two really important aspects to this bill. The first is that the Senate was given the opportunity, and, and thankfully most of us took it, to stand with 
the AAPI community in condemning these kinds of discriminatory actions against uh, our community. The second is that there are provisions in the bill that should result in data enabling people of the, of our community who experience these kinds of crimes and incidents to be able to more readily report them so that we have a database from which to make further decisions as to what else we should do. But, you know, for uh, passing this bill is not going to change people's hearts and minds. So there are many other uh, things that we can do, including probably changing uh, our curriculum so that it more accurately reflects how uh, AAPIs have been discriminated against in our country. And, and while we're at it to portray realistically how we have not dealt with the systemic racism against the, the Black community as well as what has happened to our Native communities. I want to move on to the economics of working families, which is is in, in many ways something that you start the book with. And in the preface, you have this beautiful section talking about how your mother worked hard and you and your brother and she would lie on one mattress. And at one point, she had to raid your piggy bank just to keep the family afloat. What do you think that working families in America need now and, and in your state, which is one of the most expensive states in, in America? We all know that, at least most of us recognize that there's a huge uh, economic divide uh, that is uh, ever growing in our country between those who are very wealthy and those who are not. The family, uh, American family plan that will provide childcare and family leave, those are all important parts of enabling our working families and, and individuals to have the kind of opportunities that they ought to have in our country. Clearly, the richest uh, corporations and individuals should be paying their fair share of taxes. Do you think that the plans that President Joe Biden and the Democrats have to change the tax code will, in fact, proceed in this very stratified political environment? Well, we may have to do it without any Republican votes because Mitch McConnell has made it clear that uh, he has uh, little to no intention uh, supporting that method of paying for the uh, programs that Joe Biden wants to put forward. So while the Democrats set the agenda, the Senate is divided 50-50. We need every vote in order to get things passed. And when we need 60 votes, we obviously need Republican votes. When you have the Republican leader saying that he is not going to do anything or anything much to help Joe Biden reach his goals, you create a situation where compromise will be very hard, where bipartisan efforts will be very hard. If Mitch McConnell tomorrow said, I will work with the Democrats to get things done for, for the people of our country, things will happen. Because I think the majority of his caucus wants to help their own constituents. One hopes that will be a motivator. And there will always be those who will hold out. You know, there will be the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, and, and some of the others. But if Mitch McConnell were to say, I'm going to work with the Democrats, it will happen. But he won't say that. He hasn't said it, and quite to the contrary. And that's why, although I, of course, we, I, the, uh, the Democrats, we all want to achieve big things in a bipartisan way, but that doesn't mean that we haven't learned something from four years of uh, nothing much happening for the people of our country uh, through Mitch McConnell's leadership 
having learned from that, if we want to get things done, we are going to have to look at other processes such as reconciliation. And I do believe that we need to do filibuster reform so that, that these big bills do not require 60 votes to go anywhere. Senator, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Farai. Aloha. Everyone take care. That was Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. Her book, Heart of Fire, is out now. The U.S. legal system is harsh on children. It was only in the 2000s that our courts abolished the death penalty for people under 18, for example. Late last month, the Supreme Court ruled on sentencing minors convicted of homicide to life without parole. Here to explain the ruling and its consequences is Tiffany Jeffers. She's associate professor of law, legal practice at Georgetown University Law Center, and our legal analyst here on Our Body Politic. Welcome, Tiffany. Hi, Farai. It's great to be here. Well, it's always great to have you on. And we're going to run through a few different issues. Let's start with the Supreme Court case Jones v. Mississippi. What's at issue? Just break it down for us. So what's at stake here is making a determination as to whether juveniles um, can be sentenced to life without parole um, for the crime of murder. And the court has said, yes, they can now, which is a drastic change from where the jurisprudence has been over the last decade or so as it relates to sentencing juveniles. And this all stems from the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishment phrasing, um, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment in the context of being punished for crimes. And so what was the precedent that the cruel and unusual stipulation meant that this just wasn't done in the past or was it done sometimes? It was. Juveniles uh, had previously been sentenced to death. And that's where the, the court started with saying that juveniles could not be sentenced to death. Right. So that was the initial case precedent. And then moving from there, it was a decision of uh, the discussion changed to can juveniles be sentenced to life without parole. And the issue here is whether they can be sentenced to life without parole without a specific finding that their actions are incorrigible, meaning that they are so reprehensible, this particular crime shows that they cannot be rehabilitated. And so that's what the court is saying, that state courts are no longer going to be required to make a finding that a juvenile cannot be rehabilitated before sentencing them to life without parole for murder. And the science doesn't support this finding at all. A child's brain is not fully developed really into the mid-20s. And so that science is saying essentially that all juveniles can be rehabilitated until our brain is set as adults. And the court has, has just strayed from their jurisprudence all the way up until this point. And Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a dissent to the case speaking about how this was uh, gutting the precedent and including the line, quote, the court is fooling no one, end quote. Them's fighting words. So how do you interpret her dissent? You know, I think it's so interesting for I how uh, justices write dissents and then get up and go to work the next day to face these colleagues um, after they've said something like that. But her, Justice Sotomayor's dissent was scathing. Not only did she say 
that these justices, the majority justices, are not fooling anyone. She used Justice Kavanaugh's own written words against him in the dissent to show how he has supported not um, upending precedent without um, really big support in his own written opinion. She she cited his own words to him. And Justice Sotomayor in her um, dissent talks about how it's not just an upending of precedent, but it also does nothing to help states have some type of guidance as to how they should proceed in sentencing juveniles to violent crime, for, uh, convicted of violent crimes, um, but also doesn't protect juveniles in any way. And so what does this say about the bigger picture, the direction that our criminal justice system is going either on the Supreme Court level or on broader levels? What I found interesting, Farai, in this opinion, um, specifically Kavanaugh's use of procedure, it's not that I, he wrote as if he cared deeply about the system and its impact substantively on juveniles, but for this procedural nuance. And so what I see is the courts using technicalities and rules to upend protections for people convicted of crimes, both in sentencing and prior to sentencing in the conviction process itself. And it's a scary thing when the proceed, when, when a technicality is what the conservative court will rely on to really dissolve rights that we all have under the Constitution. Let's move on to another set of legal issues. Uh, last month, two cases were decided related to voting. In one, uh, a man named Bruce Bartman from Pennsylvania, who's white, illegally voted for President Trump in 2020 on behalf of his dead mother. He got five years probation. In another case, a Black woman from Texas named Crystal Mason cast a provisional ballot, which wasn't even counted, in 2016 that was illegal because of her criminal record. And she was on supervised release after serving five years for tax fraud. Um, She's facing five years in prison. What is your biggest takeaway from the difference in sentencing and, and how it reflects on the differences between states and the differences between enforcement by race, gender, et cetera? I think it's hard to separate the racial history of the makeup and foundation of this country from the laws that are implemented um, against its citizens. So here we see a white man receiving mercy and a Black woman having essentially the possibility of the book being thrown at her all under the guise, again, of a technicality of procedure. So the differences are that technically uh, this Black woman had been on parole after serving time for tax evasion. So on the surface of it, it looks as if, well, she was on parole. That was her chance. But when you look at it, when you take out the layers, if you look below the surface, the alleged crime is minuscule compared to the crime of the white man actually casting a ballot in his deceased mother's name. Like the intent levels are completely different. And so that does speak to the disparity in sentencing, not just based on race, but as you said, Farai, based in jurisdiction. There's no consistency among the states. Um, And that's, again, I think we've had this conversation before talking about the 10th Amendment and how states have these rights to really govern their citizens and enact their own state and local laws. Um, But what does that mean for citizens of the United States collectively. It means that there's no parity among states when these types of similar instances are happening. One person is sentenced to probation, a white man, 
another person is facing five years imprisonment, a Black woman, and it's just unfair. Now, let's go to the broader topic of voting rights. You have been one of our guide stars in looking at this issue and how it's unfolding on the state and federal level. Um, Last time we spoke, we really focused on Georgia. Um, What's the big picture? It almost feels like there's no stopping uh, this snowball effect of uh, suppressing votes of Black, Brown, Indigenous, and poor people in communities um, in states like Georgia. And it almost seems unstoppable at this point with the state legislation that's happening in these Republican-led states. So it means that we really need to start paying more attention to local elections in these 40-plus jurisdictions And really the people who have control over how ballots are counted, how ballots are received, how voting is implemented in that local jurisdiction, that's where those grassroots organizational efforts are going to be most impactful in local elections. Professor, always great to talk to you and thank you so much for joining us. Farai, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thanks. That was Tiffany Jeffers of Georgetown Law and Our Body Politic Legal Analyst. Journalists like me use surveys and polling to support our research, and it's important to find data that accurately reflects reality, especially since people of color are often poorly measured. So I've invited two data scientists to collaborate with Our Body Politic on a continuing basis. Dr. Jen Jackson and Dr. Diane Wong are research consultants with the Gen Forward survey. It's the first survey of its kind, specifically targeting young adults ages 18 to 36 and oversampling to gather accurate data from Black, Asian, and Latinx Americans in particular. Dr. Jen M. Jackson is assistant professor at Syracuse University. Hi, Dr. Jackson. Hello, glad to be here. And Dr. Diane Wong is assistant professor at Rutgers University, Newark. Hey, Dr. Wong. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Dr. Wong, what constitutes good data? What does that even mean? For me, when I think of good data, I think of representation and access. So representation in terms of ensuring that the voices of those who are multiply marginalized within our communities are adequately represented in the data in ways that are meaningful beyond just demographics, right? And access in terms of developing multiple embodiment approaches to thinking with the communities in which the data is collected for and by in the first place. So I think largely often as a community-rooted scholar, right, what compels me to build with projects like Gen Forward is this desire to move away from gatekeeping models of data collection that we so often see in academia. In order to access data, you need to have often proof of university or institutional affiliation or thousands of dollars to pay for the data set, which limits who has access to data. And so I think about this idea of research justice, right, to challenge these extractivist logics of the academy and to recognize that communities have long been stewards of their own knowledge construction and data production. And so, Dr. Jackson, pick up on some of these threads. There was a lot of information in what Dr. Wong was saying, talking about having an approach, you know, that is either extractive or community-based. How, how does, you know, how do you look at kind of the purpose of data in this question of good data? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that what Dr. Wong is saying is really, really important, specifically on this idea of research justice. I think that there are a lot of ways that as social scientists, um, we set out to answer questions, but we don't often understand that we're talking about real people's lives um, and their experiences in their day-to-day actions, how they go to work, how they feed their children, how they navigate healthcare, how they access uh, economic uh, resources. Um, What's been really important about working with Jen Ford was this was the specific need that this organization was started to answer. Um, And so what I really want to, I think, highlight here is that when we talk about good data, um, I always talk about this GIGO method. This is the garbage in, garbage out method. Uh, This goes back to my engineering days. And the truth is, is that what you put in is precisely what you get out. And a lot of folks think that when we see these polls and and the surveys that we see the results from on uh, national news media, that they are reliable and that whatever we see there is necessarily representative of the majority of what Americans are experiencing and thinking. But the truth is, is that the ways that we conceive of who counts as a citizen and whose opinion matters and whose lives are actually a part of politics, all of that matters when we think about how we collect data and how we interpret it. So we're not here to you know, give voice or um, to tell the story, right? Uh, rather, we see ourselves very much so as learning from folks who are already experiencing uh, the types of injustices and the types of concerns that we amplify with our work. So, Dr. Wong, one thing that I think we should just be transparent about is that we intersect with a lot of different types of media. And a lot of people who do traditional political media would be like, oh, my gosh, why are these people even talking to organizers? Doesn't that taint the survey? Um, So, Dr. Wong, how does that play out in your mind? It's interesting you mentioned that, right, because just thinking about the team who makes up Gen Forward, a lot of us have different hats on all the time. We're scholars, we're educators, we're activists, organizers, cultural workers. And so I think we bring all of that into how we shape and see the data. And it's just thinking about the kinds of questions that come through the data, right, each time it's fielded, it depends on the pulse of the people, depends on the pulse of the movement, and what community organizers and activists are focused on at that particular moment in time. That's critical, right? So as a team, we really try to stay nimble and think expansively as possible about academic and non-academic collaboration. And so just an example, right, after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor last summer, there was a lot of momentum around abolition, policing, defunding the police, So in response, we launched a survey on protest, racism, and policing because of what was unfolding on the ground and the kind of data that organizers at the time needed for testimonies and things like that. And so we see it as, um, you know, in tandem and largely interconnected work. And I'm just going to wrap up with you, Dr. Jackson. What what gives you joy about this work? It's, you know, you've gone to a lot of trouble to get... (laughs) fancy degrees and all that stuff. Um, What makes you engaged? Oh my gosh, I love this question. So, you know, I am one of those people, I grew up in Oakland, California. You know, I grew up a queer Black girl um, in a city that was gentrifying. And um, I experienced a lot of things that I didn't have the words for. I didn't 
um, know that there were terminologies that were referring to my life chances and to the ways that I was navigating the terrain around me. I didn't know about these kind of notions of racial threat that scholars were publishing in 1949 and all of that. Um, And so for me, what I really enjoy about the work and about being in community with the folks that I work with at Gen Forward um, is that it's really uh, gratifying to be able to see parts of my life um, that have shaped who I am as a person and as a scholar and a researcher reflected in such a meaningful way um, and able to kind of use this platform and this work as a resource for communities that also are birthing uh, young Black queer folks, young Black queer girls, um, folks at multiple margins of identity. Um, so that's probably mo- the most uh, significant part of it for me. And I'm excited about what the young people are doing in their communities and how they have been reacting to the work that we're doing. I'm excited for what comes next. So are we. And Dr. Jackson, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you so much, Dr. Wong. Thank you. That was Dr. Jen Jackson of Syracuse University and Dr. Diane Wong of Rutgers University, research consultants for the Gen Forward Survey. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And joining me this week is our body politic contributor, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. Hey, Aaron. Hey there, Farai. And Karen Atia, global opinions editor at The Washington Post. Welcome back to Our Body Politic, Karen. Thanks so much, Farai. All right, Aaron, it is yet another week in politics. What are we talking about today? So it is. And, you know, since we have a global editor with us today, Farai, I thought we would start with the global perception of the United States. So um, earlier this month, a poll was conducted by the Alliance for Democracy Foundation and found that the U.S. is seen as a bigger threat to democracy than Russia or China. Uh, there were 50,000 respondents in 53 countries. Nearly half of the respondents said that they are concerned that the U.S. threatens democracy in their country uh, and compare that to fear of Chinese influence, which was at 38 percent, and fear of Russian influence at its lowest at 28 percent. Karen, I want to come to you and ask, why do you think that this is happening now? And what does this say about our own assumption that the U.S. is a worldwide defender of democracy? This is such uh, an an interesting question and and development. Perhaps probably in many ways as we're seeing a bit of like the aftershocks or the political hangover, the the global influence hangover from the Trump years. Um, Look, let's be real. For a long time, for for decades across the world, um, whether it's Latin America whether it's Africa, whether it's the East, they've long you know, been criticisms of the United States' domestic record when it comes to human rights. I mean, if we think back to the civil uh, rights era in many ways, I mean, the civil rights era here was you know, cross-pollinated with what was being seen and done around the world. You know, Martin Luther King was criticizing uh, the U.S.'s actions in Vietnam, for instance, same with Muhammad Ali. So it's not new that the U.S.'s sort of self-assumed position as the quote-unquote leader of the world has been challenged. I think what is perhaps new now is in the last, let's say, maybe perhaps five years, both with like the advent of social media, with global media networks, and frankly, with uh, witnessing the pandemic and the 
um, insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol building. Um, it's really just been in the protests, of course, over uh, Black Lives Matter and, and George Floyd. It's really just been literally we can't escape. The whole world can't escape uh, the U.S.'s issues when it comes to its stated positions on democracy and human rights and its actual actions. So, you know, for for these uh, reports, you know, just add, they're just adding data points in many ways to what uh, many, again, people, activists, scholars, uh, legal analysts around the world have been saying for a long time that uh, the U.S. Um, doesn't walk the walk when it comes to democracy and human rights. It talks the talk. We've exported a lot of our nice ideas about democracy and, and freedom and, and fairness. And yet here at home, all of our problems are on display for the world to see. So, Farai, we saw a major threat to our democracy when former President Trump called for foreign interference in the elections that he ran in. Uh, what do you make of the hundred Republicans who are now threatening to form a third party if the GOP doesn't loosen the grip of the former president? You know, it's really fascinating. I mean, I can't help but think about some of the reporting I did during the 2016 cycle when Jeb Bush made this very minor dog whistle um, about, you know, Republicans not just offering Black voters free stuff. And I went into the history of free stuff as a dog whistle. Um, but it's so mild compared to kind of what we got. And I, I do, I can't help but think where I'm going with this. Um, if a, as many centrist Republicans had stood up during the early days of the 2016 dog whistle cycle and before candidate Donald Trump had gathered momentum, would there have been a different outcome? So, you know, I think it's a very complicated thing because right now the power center is still with Trumpists, you know, as evidenced by uh, the leadership ouster of Liz Cheney. So um, I will be very interested to see whether this has a, a long range effect, but it's certainly making a statement that centrist Republicans are not happy with the direction of the party. Um, yeah, let me jump in here. It is so interesting, this notion of Republicans um, and and Trump asking for foreign help to to help them with uh, with their elections. Um, it it's frequently a, a talking point of conservatives for a long time that um, an argument for why the U.S. doesn't need the U.N. and we don't need foreign interference. We can do things you know on our own. I remember maybe a few months ago I had a somewhat a sarcastic tweet about our issues in with democracy and our uh, we have a political party that's calling for um, basically you know overturning our democracy and it's like you know it should be this is where we would have you know a UN sanctioned intervention and I got so much heat from the sort of conservative um, side so again it's just this sort of it's interesting when they call for help right uh, when all of a sudden they need um, foreign foreign assistance. But again, it just goes, it speaks to the hypocrisy and the kind of a lack of a um, cohesive political ideology um, on, the, uh, on their side. I mean, Karen, look, you're making such great points. I want to stay with you here for a second to just ask kind of what are you hearing from your contacts around the world around former President Trump's continued role in domestic politics? I mean, this isn't something that we traditionally see from, you know, the former president, right? Are there parallels to be drawn with other leaders in countries who kind of continue to play outsized roles in their parties after they are voted out of office? I mean, he seems to still have power, even though he is not in power anymore. It's so interesting you ask that. 
Uh, so my family is is from Ghana, actually, and I think a lot about uh, now the late former president Jerry John Rawlings um, in Ghana, who was who sees he actually you know was a military leader and formed one of the the democratic parties, but also had very violent authoritarian tendencies, um, depending on who you ask. And even after he left power, and I lived in Ghana for, for some time, he still, any comments he made about anything would still get outsized play in uh, the newspapers. He was, again, out of politics, but still every, um, no politician in his party in the NDC seemed to be able to escape his shadow. Um, but I, I kept thinking about um, our example with Trump and and how I think a lot of people around the world are looking at us and they're like, yeah, been there, done that. America, welcome to the club. And it's just a reminder that we, our system um, perhaps, again, is not designed to withstand the shocks of, of personality politics. The danger with Trump is that we do have this blueprint, an effective blueprint for how personality politics can really upend um, the systems and institutions that we've built. Okay, so let's keep going with the intersection of international and national political issues. Last month, human rights experts from 11 countries released a report saying U.S. police killings of Black Americans amounts to crimes against humanity. There were 12 experts from countries all over the world who determined this, okay? A 188-page report says the U.S. is violating international law, pointing to what they call police murders, as well as severe deprivation of physical liberty, torture, persecution, and other inhuman acts. Uh, Farai, how do you feel about these reports and the difference that they either can or can't make on the ground now? You know, it's interesting. So I, you know, have done a lot of different roles in journalism that have allowed me to see essentially um, what is the impact of different types of stories. And you look at something like the 1619 Project. You know, we just had Nicole Hannah-Jones on last week, and that has had a huge impact on, on the field of journalism and how we're looking at Black history and American history, um, you know, uh, and and that's what we talked about on the show. But there's so many stories that are great journalism and unfortunately sometimes ones that are bad journalism that have lots of ripple effects that we don't know directly about. And so, um, you know, like journalism, reports like this are only as good as the long tail. Will people pay attention? Does it make sense to Americans who are not always super global-minded, just being real, um, to pay attention to what international experts say. I'm not sure how much people will pay attention um, just based on some of our cultural biases. Karen, I want to ask you what you make of this report. And if you see a scenario where this kind of outside pressure can make an impact on domestic policy. I think that's your second question is is the real key question. Again, it, it just adds to what so many um, have been saying for such a long time, that police brutality is an international human rights issue and that the U.S., again, for its efforts to try to be seen as a, as a global leader has uh, not only sort of fallen far short, but almost sort of <laughs> feels that it, it can act with impunity um, when it comes to particularly 
the killings of, of, of black people. Um, whether or not this is something that will have a, a ripple effect in, in domestic politics, look, we're a hegemon. There's a reason why uh, being in power is nice in that it is very difficult to hold the U.S. Uh, very accountable in, in many of these ways. Um, but that being said, it does give credence and credibility to what we have been saying for a long time. Yeah, you're exactly right. Historically, we know the rest of the world has kind of looked at the impact of, of racism, particularly against African-Americans, and, and called out our country's hypocrisy, right, in terms of how our actions don't always square with our ideals around freedom and liberty and justice for all. If I could add uh, to that, one thing that this does give kind of ammunition and credence and power to is actually perhaps to other countries that might say, why should we listen to the U.S. on on our security reform? Why do we need to listen to the U.S. on on human rights? We just had this international board um, condemn this country for this, right? So I think um, internationally, again, I mean, these are countries where the U.S. actually sends police forces to go train other countries. Um, so none of this, none of this is in a vacuum. So I could see, you know, and, and China and Russia actually have kind of already done this where they're like, we don't have to listen to you. Other African countries actually um, have uh, issued, you know, statements when it comes to this saying, well, you know, just pointing out this, this hypocrisy. So I think it, it does erode um, the U.S.'s legitimacy when, when we are trying to, again, lecture other countries. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely something we saw, you know, during Jim Crow and and, and is happening, um, you know, could be happening again uh, in this era. So uh, a major headline right now in international news is, of course, the escalating violence between Israel and Palestine and East Jerusalem, uh, some of the worst violence that we've seen in years. And Karen, there's a history of solidarity between movements like Black Lives Matter and Palestinians. Uh, how are people of color in the U.S. weighing in right now on that violence in Israel? I think back to uh, to the to Ferguson um, and when uh, protesters in Ferguson against um, police brutality were, were being tear gassed, and I distinctly remember um, Palestinians on social media offering advice on what to do with tear gas. You know, use milk, don't use water, um, offering tactics for uh, for resisting oppression. Um, and there has been a long history of, of Black scholars and, and academics speaking out about Palestine and seeing these struggles linked in terms of really what it comes down to, which is resisting imperialism, the tenets of, of uh, colonization, and, and capitalism, you know, supported by, supported by the West. Again, it speaks to, is this going to lead to, to a change in U.S. stances towards the Israel-Palestine um, uh, conflict. Yeah. Uh, well, Farai, the Biden-Harris administration so far is towing a line on an issue it seems to not really have wanted to engage with. So, uh, you know, what's at stake here in the administration's response? You know, I'm actually going to start addressing the Biden-Harris administration through what I know about newsrooms. So at one of my many former newsrooms, an editor I respected was like, we do not cover, after I'd pitched some stories during a previous conflict, we don't cover Israel-Palestine. There's nothing in it for us. It's, you know, everyone hates what we do no matter what we do. And I think that to understand how the Biden-Harris team is probably reckoning with the situation is to understand that this is a highly um, politicized issue in ways that are really unique and that it's kind of a third rail in politics. 
So if we're having a roundtable about international news, uh, you know, we have to talk about COVID-19. In a recent State Department report, diplomats said that they were having a hard time because of a lack of U.S. leadership in the first year uh, of the pandemic. Uh, You know, the White House has delayed travel warnings to U.S. citizens until airlines started to cut flights. And in, in March of last year, the U.S. withdrew from the World Health Organization, canceled plans to host the G7 summit last June and declined to join the COVID-19 vaccines global access facility back in February. So, Farai, what does this report tell us about the role that the U.S. could have played in the COVID response and how our response impacts our national security now? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, I was just having uh, a conversation with someone who worked in, you know, the federal government for years on international health policy. And it is not only something where with COVID, what happens in other countries very directly impacts us. It always impacts us, but just very directly in a pandemic. But also it's it's the kind of thing where we are judged by our level of compassion. And that's why it affects, uh, you know, national security. I mean, there will be many, right now there's essentially um, a global resource race on where superpowers are going and cutting deals with nations in Africa, Asia, et cetera, to try to stake out territory, um, you know, physical, but also I think mainly around natural resources. And this both affects the supply chain of, you know, every type of resource, uh, you know, the, the COVID response, but it also affects how we're seen in the world. Yeah. And and Karen, I want to get you in here on just that worldwide COVID vaccination. Back in February, you wrote wealthy nations gobble up more than their fair share of available vaccine doses, saying high income countries, which represent only 16 percent of the world's population, have taken 60 percent of available doses. Uh, The Biden-Harris administration has pledged to rejoin the World Health Organization and roll back a lot of these uh, Trump-era America First policies. So, you know, as far as COVID is concerned, is this administration meeting your expectations? Yeah, I mean, since since I've written that piece, there's been a lot of advocacy and pressure, particularly for the Biden Harris administration, to basically basically sign a, a waiver on the on the patents of, of vaccines, which would, in theory, allow for less wealthy nations to be able to access the the knowledge and the know how to begin to produce uh, their own vaccines. I think Farai's point is really key here. This global pandemic is truly global. We could be sitting here in this as a global community until 2023, 2024, if the projections hold. So right now, this is a critical time for us to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. And as we talk about, you know, how this country restores its standing in the world, uh, vaccine diplomacy and how we are part of, you know, a major partner in that solution uh, is definitely uh, going to be something to keep an eye on. So We're going to have to leave it there for now. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but it was really nice talking with you this week, Karen. Thanks, Aaron and Farai for having me. This was fun. Always nice chatting with you again, Farai. It's always great to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. 
Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Emily Daly is our assistant producer. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Natina Bean, and Sarah McClure. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Compton Foundation, the Harnish Foundation, the Be Me Community, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.